This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. My guest today is Joanne Lyon, the General Superintendent Emerita of the Wesleyan Church. After serving for eight years as the General Superintendent, Joanne then served another four years as a roving ambassador for the denomination. Joanne currently serves on the board of directors of several organizations, including the National Association of Evangelicals, the Christian Community Development Association, and Asbury Theological Seminary. In 1996, out of a passion to put the gospel into action serving the poor, Joanne started World Hope, a Christian relief and development organization that helps the poor in more than 20 countries. Joanne, thanks so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation with you because you've had such a remarkable career in church leadership. Thank you, Rich. It's great to be with you. And um, uh, and I'm grateful for all the doors that God has opened. So that's... Uh, that's 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 the real bottom line in all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, we've got a lot to cover in our conversation today about leadership uh, and Christian leadership. But I think the place I want to start is with your appointment to become the head of the Wesleyan Church. I think it was back in 2008. Now, I don't know if you were the first woman to become the head of any major denomination, but you were certainly one of the few to hold such a position. So, uh, what were the factors that led to you being appointed uh, as head of this great denomination? Well, thank you, Rich. Actually, I was elected, so that's different than being appointed. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, uh, which made it even more significant. I might add that the Wesleyan Church has been open uh, for women in leadership. In fact, the founder of the Wesleyan Methodist Church ordained the first woman to be ordained in the United States in 1853, Antoinette Brown. Wow. So women's ordination has always been an uh, open door in the Wesleyan Church. However, there's a difference between being ordained and the issues that move on up regarding power and authority for women. Uh, and I think those are, are some of the interesting pieces. Um, so I was the first woman. So we might have ordained the first woman 150 years earlier, but it took a while to elect a woman with power and authority. Um, but I, I just want to say that that, this is not something I had ever sought to, I mean, I had no great, great desire to break that ceiling. Somehow I just, I, I had a passion to see, um, the kingdom of God in all its fullness, uh, in the, in the United States and around the world, obviously for 12 years prior, I had been around the world with World Hope International, you know, uh, regarding, justice and uh, uh, opportunity and hope for the poor. And um, so I just want to see that expanded in, in every place. So I, th I think uh, to say that, that that I just sat around and decided I want to crack all these glass ceilings, that was never it. Mm -hmm. And as you've said in, in your book, really, it's about leading, uh, leading as what matters to God uh, more than anything else. So that's 
I think in a sense, I had some people say, we didn't elect you for your gender. We elected you for your leadership. Now I take that very humbly because I just mm -hmm. want to say, I never even thought of myself as a leader. I just saw myself as getting things done. Well, that's what the best leaders uh, find a way to do is they find a way to get things done. And, but, you know, as, as a woman coming up through the Wesleyan denomination, uh, you must have felt some barriers or discrimination over the years. Uh, what form did that take or how did you, uh, how did you experience that? Well, th there, there were barriers. I must say that my mother was an ordained minister as well. So, and my father. So I grew up in kind of this pioneer household mm. uh, that, uh, that we can, we can just keep doing things and we can just move forward. And they were uh, very much pioneers in church planting and things like that. So, um, so I grew up with that kind of attitude that we, we just constantly keep moving forward and, and doing things that maybe aren't always, uh, aren't always, you know, what everybody else is doing, but, but we're just going to move forward because this is what, how things ought to be. Uh, and make the world a better place, really. I mean, that's a simple kind of thing, but that was kind of stuck in our in our DNA of our family. Um, so it would be, um, um, so, so, but yet as I moved along, obviously there were barriers uh, and uh, lots of things that, that swept through the evangelical world about, you know, women and finding their place. And, uh, and it became more difficult later in the, you know, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, as things moved along. Uh, and, and I, I was, um, I, I, I came up against that and actually, um, I helped, I was one of the founders of Christians for Biblical Equality, along with Catherine, um, Crager and, uh, some of those great pioneers. Mm -hmm. So I just kept speaking about that. As I look back, I think our voices were kind of timid. <laughs> uh, we were trying to speak, but it was timid with this other large onslaught. So yes, it was not easy. You know, it, it, it our faith is 2000 years old and uh, right. older if you go back to the, the the old testament and jewish tradition but you know you think uh it's only been very very recently that there have been these tectonic shifts in mm -hmm. women in leadership uh, within the church and right. um you know we have to remember that in this country women only got the right to vote in 1920 absolutely and in uh in 19 65, very few uh, women would have been allowed to pastor a church or even be ordained in, in many denominations, if not right. most denominations. So, um, uh, again, becoming the head of uh, a denomination uh, in 2008 uh, was a real breakthrough for women. And I think younger women today, you know, women in their 20s, um, probably don't appreciate some of the barriers that uh, women in your generation faced mm -hmm. uh, coming up through the ranks, especially within the church. I mean, I think right. other barriers broke down sooner in, you know, law and medicine and uh, business. And, mm -hmm. you know, those barriers came down earlier, uh, I think, than the barriers in, in the churches. Uh, so what would you, uh, what advice would you give to a woman maybe in her 20s right now or 30s, who uh, wants to be a leader within uh, her church uh, or a Christian ministry, uh, what advice might you give a younger woman today about uh, her leadership prospects? Well, one of the things that I, and I do um, speak with younger women and, and in really encouraging them to move right ahead, to continue to move right ahead, but their work has to define, they have to be, they have to accomplish what they're, 
saying. I mean, they can't just say, I want the next step up. They have to prove what it is. Now, the sad thing about this is, and it continues on to this day, is that men are promoted on their potential. Women are promoted on their accomplishments. Yeah. Uh, I, I've and, heard that more than once from a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so that's what I say to women today. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. And trying to work with men at the same time, I work with men say, wait a minute, can't you see that potential in that woman? See what she, see what her gifts are, see how she's moving along, see what she does uh, and, and promote them on that. And so I think some men are, are moving in that as well at promoting, moving away from just on accomplishments, but still that kind of is the, is the reigning factor there um, with that. So, uh, it, it, I mean, I'd like to say to women, oh, it's, it's, it's easy. Just no, it isn't. It is still a journey to move forward. And the other thing, Rich, is that we have to look at some of the systems in the church. If we're going to talk about the church, what are some of the systems in the church? Some of your election systems, some of your, just those systems that mm -hmm. move people through, those need to be looked at. And I've I, and actually in the Wesleyan Church have recently been taking another look at some of those systems that that keep women and people of color from moving in uh, in in uh, various spaces in the church. Is it election? Is it an appointment? I mean, some people say, well, appointments are easy. Well, appointments. But if if the people that are in the appointment power don't like you, then, you know, you're stuck. So, uh, so it, it, we, we really, those are systems that just need to be taken, re-examined. If you, if you don't um, include women in these senior leadership positions, it's like uh, a team taking the field with half their best players on the bench, right? You know, you've got right. these right. wonderful leaders and capable people. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you leave all the female leaders on the bench, you know, you're, you're playing at a serious disadvantage. That's exactly right. And the other thing, too, in this is that uh, if if organizations really are really mean that they want to to move women forward, they have to be it has to be intentional. Mm -hmm. It has to be. You can't just say, well, they didn't get elected or they didn't get appointed. It has to be intentional in this. Uh, so I'm, I'm very um, and, you know, Rich, when I first started World Hope, I was the only female leader of the Christian in the Christian Relief and Development a group, too. Yeah, uh, that had not been. I think there's more now. But but and I and I remember going to the first meeting and then, then it was called Erdo. And mm -hmm. we're going to the first Erdo meeting. I thought, oh, my goodness. I, mean, I was just kind of stunned uh, that I was the only one. Um, but yeah. it's, it's changed and it's moved ahead. But those were. Again, it wasn't. Again, I was not trying to crack that that uh, NGO ceiling. Uh, I would go to the to the secular uh, women in DC, the secular organizations. Many women leading the secular organizations. Yeah, save the children, yeah. care, yeah. Uh, mercy corps, all yeah. had female uh, we leaders had meetings together, and they were always stunned uh, that I was the only woman in the in the Christian Relief and Development group. Uh, and and I I might say that something that that Really, as I was coming up, I worked in the in the in the secular world. I worked actually for a decade in the urban context of Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and ran government programs, et cetera. And that was, I mean, my gender didn't make a difference. You know, mm -hmm. it was it, and that I think I'm grateful because I was able to grow and um, and and learn 
leadership and all kinds of things in that environment, which I'm sorry. I wish it could have been the church. Yeah. You know, uh, when I graduated from business school, I went to the Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania. And um, in my class of 500 MBA students, I think there were about 20 or 25 women out of 500. Uh Today, Wharton is about 50% female and Uh maybe 30% minority uh, in addition. So that's just in the span of one career, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, From when I began my career to when I finished. And there's really been a remarkable sea change um, that's happened very rapidly in the last Mm -hmm. uh, 30 or 40 years in in every field of endeavor. You know, Mm -hmm. um, women are getting more PhDs uh, nationally than men today. Uh, More women are graduating with a bachelor's degree than men. And so you, the, the women are taken over and it's, it's about time That's right. uh, that you we know, have some inter- female leadership. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I was elected to the head of the Wesleyan Church, uh, at that time, there were only four women heads of denominations, period, in the Protestant world. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, now, I, it's a little more now, but still not a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I well remember I was invited to the Egyptian embassy in DC to meet with the then vice president. As when Morsi was a president, she was a vice president. And, um, uh, and, and so they invited me there with, along with a few other people for a reception for her. And so um, when she asked me about being a head of a church and what that was like, et cetera. And so I, I, said to her then i said actually she asked me the question how many women are heads of 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 uh, protestant denominations and i said well i'm sorry to tell you but there are only four right now and she i remember she looked at me so she said oh my but powerful powerful <laughs> <laughs> well I, that leads me to another question you know after eight years as general superintendent of the Wesleyan denomination, you did something extraordinary. You decided not to run for another term and you actually stepped aside. Now, one of the things I see today, not only in the church, but also in ministries and nonprofits is that leaders often cling to their power and their position. And sometimes that's not healthy for an organization or the organization they lead. So, what made you think after becoming one of the first women to lead a denomination that it was time for you to step down and for someone else to lead? That was a, a, a pretty extraordinary decision. You know, that's interesting, uh, Rich, that you ask. Um, I prayed um, and I just felt there's that sense that, you know, you were put in this position. God put you in that position for a specific purpose. We'd done some restructuring in the church. We'd done a whole lot of change, a, a lot. And it was on a good track and it was rolling forward, really rolling forward in a wonderful way. And I just sensed that God was saying, uh, you've done what I intended for you to do. And so that's what, when I said that I would not allow my name to run the next four years, I said, I feel like I've accomplished what I was supposed to accomplish. Well, some of the leaders of the denomination, these were male, male leaders had been leaders a long time, came to me and said, we don't think you're hearing from God. Um, <laughs> we need to go back and pray some more. So I did, I thought, well, maybe I made a mistake here and don't know, but I came back and I knew that it was right, that that was, there was mm-hmm. just, you know, how you know in your own heart, you know, it's it's finished, I've done yeah. what I need to do. 
And so it was then then that they said, well, we've never done this before. I'm incredibly humbled and grateful that they would do this. And they said, but would you elect a new person and that will run, but we just want you to uh, stay on for four more years as an ambassador and just kind of take the, plant the Wesleyan church flag in a lot of different places mm -hmm. and just the influence, but it wasn't just plant the Wesleyan flag, but, but who we are, what we, uh, what we believe. So, no, I, so that's I, what I did. I think it's hard for leaders to know when the t the time is right for them to move yeah. on. And, you know, one of the things I believe is that, um, you know, when you work within the church or within Christian ministry, your employer, you need to think of your employer as the Lord, not the organization, right? Mm -hmm. And right. The, Lord, the Lord might want to reassign you. So, right. uh, you know, he might move you from well, world vision to another place, you know, right. or world hope to another place because, you know, you still got the same employer. We're all still working for the Lord, but there's a lot of places in the kingdom where we can serve and not just the place where we're currently serving. And That's I think true. sometimes pastors in particular, um, especially those that have founded a church or started mm -hmm. their own church and have been 20, 30 years in that church, right. uh, very difficult for them to let go of mm -hmm. that ministry, even if maybe it's gotten to the point where their leadership is not the right type of leadership right. for the church at this moment. And mm -hmm. um, so that moving on is difficult. And there's another concept that I've discovered as a leader that if you do stay somewhere for a long time, and some people stay quite, I stayed 20 years at World Vision, and I like to think that, you know, it was a productive 20 years mm -hmm. before I stepped aside. Um, but I think the best leaders find ways to reinvent themselves, you know, and what do mm -hmm. I mean by that? Once you've been somewhere for five, six, seven, eight years, uh, you've put a lot of things in place. You've mm -hmm. organized the structure of the organization. You've you put programs in place. And then five, six, seven years later, that organization needs a different vision, a mm -hmm. different kind of leadership direction. And so the best leaders find a way to reinvent themselves. And that requires something I call creative destruction. Sometimes you have to dismantle some of the things you built because mm -hmm. they were the right thing for that time. Let's say your organization structure was right for mm -hmm. the year 2010. Mm -hmm. But it's not the right structure in 2018. And right. so it's hard for a leader to dismantle something they've created. But that may mm -hmm. be the one thing they need to do to kind of reinvent their their vision, refresh their vision for the organization and to take it in a relevant direction all those years later. And so I often encourage young leaders to think about, you know, once you've been a place five, six, seven years how do you reinvent yourself in that position mm -hmm. so that you can take the organization to the next level, take your leadership to the next level? And uh, if you can manage to do that, um, I think you can stay in an organization for 10, 15 or 20 years mm -hmm. and still be very fresh and productive. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I think uh, and I think right now we're we are really in a, in a time when things are moving fast. Um, I was on the Council on Faith with the World Economic Forum uh for several years and one of the things that came up is this whole issue that we're involved in right now in the fourth industrial revolution mm -hmm. and it's the most fat it's the fastest moving uh revolution we've ever experienced in our world and that was before we had you know the pandemic and all these kinds of things and what was brought up more than once in that is re uh reinventing your vision reinventing 
and what's what's needed because what's needed next year or the next two years probably was not five what you did five years ago and always looking around the corner what's next you know the leader that looks around the corner um jared diamond says this quite well in his book collapse mm -hmm. uh talks about the addressing the elephant in the room and what's around the corner or you will collapse so you got to keep keep moving in that way i totally agree with that and and you can't get comfortable you know i think many leaders like you said have been it for a long time well i, I keep doing the same thing they get comfortable and then then they're missing what's around the corner they're missing the elephant in the room they're missing what's happening and and then things begin to deteriorate i want to talk about something remarkable you did back in 1996 you decided all by yourself to start a new international relief and development organization called world hope international now that seems like a pretty radical thing for you to have done and i believe you actually did it without funding from your church and not knowing if you'd have a salary even. Uh, so what what motivated you, Joanne, to uh, kind of break away from your, you know, your your paying job mm -hmm. and and start this organization? Well, that's interesting that you ask, uh, Rich. Um, I've had great respect for World Vision and all they've done in all these years. And um, uh, and I um, I've had um, experiences in, in other things and certainly uh, with, as I mentioned, in the urban context uh, in those years. In 1980, we were living, we were pastoring a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time, and uh, my husband and I, and uh, I was, I worked with what was called uh, Grand Rapids Area Center for Ecumenism there. And, uh, and we we're working regarding hunger issues in, in Grand Rapids and other places. Uh, and so the in 1985, the ABC affiliate there decided they wanted to do a documentary on the famine in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And so they invited me to go along as a faith person from the from the Grand Rapids Area Center for Humanism. So I I went on that trip um, and uh, and World Vision was there. I saw saw some of the work that World Vision was doing in 85 there. Uh, but it was the 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 christian response was very limited as you know during that time it's a communist country etc and um so uh, we saw the whole thing did this whole documentary uh and um and i i'd never seen obviously i'd never seen anyone any people literally die of starvation mm -hmm. and i out in one of the feeding places one of the women just dropped to the ground right in front of me and died uh and, and I, I, I came back and I thought this, there is enough food in the world to feed everyone. I know there are all kinds of complications there, but to feed everyone, uh, no one should die of starvation. You know, mm -hmm. there's just enough food. So the only thing that I, I realized that our Wesleyan church was not involved in anything like this, although we certainly came from the roots of abolitionism and the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York was held in the basement of Wesleyan Methodist church. Um, so all of this, but so where were we out there? And so I just came back and I just said, my goodness, we've got to do something. There's at least just where we were doing mission work around the world, we could come alongside and work with that. Well, at that time they weren't interested uh, and couldn't see a point in it. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that, and I've said over the years, it's about the fullness of time. God needed to do things in me. He needed to do things in the church. And uh, so it was from 1985, and learned and et cetera, many things. 
And finally, it became obvious in uh, 90, that fall of 95, and then January of 96, that this was the time to begin to start this. And then by this time, the church, the denomination embraced it, but mm -hmm. also said, you know, and it was right to, to incorporate, um, separately incorporate. So it's a 501c3 separate, not under the church, partnership together. And I'm, I might say I was on a, on the Evangelical Social Action Board with Bryant Myers during those days. Oh, yeah. And so Bryant and I would talk and I said, Brian, I, you know, it doesn't, should we really do another? And he said, yes, yes, yes. I, he said, you know, only, I don't even know what the number was then in those days, but only one in whatever knows who World Vision is. So you're not going to compete. You know, the world needs this. So he was a great encourager to move By forward. By the way, Brian, Brian Myers, for the listeners, was a, a vice president at World Vision for many years. He's exactly. now a professor at Fuller Seminary teaching, uh, you know, international missions and, uh, you know, wonderful guy. And written a lot of things, and particularly his book, Walking with the Poor. Yeah, wonderful book. Just a seminal book for most people to begin to understand what all this meant and how, how spiritually it all ro rolls together. So um, so they the church encouraged me and, and helped me actually set, set up and everything. But they finally said, but we don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're going to have to do this on your own. And and. Uh, Rich, it's probably one of the few times I've really taken that big leap of faith. I refer to it as a Kierkegaardian uh, leap of faith, you know, just going from one, one mon monkey bar to the next without holding on. And um, so started in a bedroom uh, and the church did, you know, they said, you're open to go preach at churches and raise money or whatever, but we don't have any funds to give you. Um, and I, I I quit my, my paying job and... Um, uh, and started in a bedroom at a parsonage right out of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, and and two weeks, actually the second week I'd start, I, mean, I made up a budget. Of course, I knew how to do all those things. And a vision and wrote out all this stuff, vision, purpose, whatever. Um, and one day my husband called and said, from his office at the church and called me and said, now, Joanne, I trust God, but just tell me, when do you get your last paycheck you know, from the other place? Because <laughs> we still had two kids in college at that time. and. Um, and I said, well, I, my last paycheck comes January the 20th. On January 21st, I had lunch with a businessman that day, had already set it up. I didn't think he'd be very interested, but I was going to talk to him about it anyway. And uh, as I began to talk to him about the vision of what World Hope would be, where we planned to get started, and I had a budget in my purse. <laughs> I pulled that budget right out. Now, I say this is about Habakkuk 1. God gives Habakkuk a vision. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, God says, write it down. You know, so I pulled that budget right out and handed it to him and he looked at it and his daughter and tears came to his eyes and he looked at me and he said, we'll pick up the whole thing. Wow. So he picked up the whole operation. It was all that huge, but he picked up the whole operations for that first year, which gave us, you know, because I not only just a salary, but I didn't even have any travel money or anything to go out. Yeah. So uh, that was now he didn't do that every year by any means, but that was the boost. And in a sense, that was the thing that said to me, God said, yes, I'm in this and and we're moving forward. Then in 2000, we moved to D.C. You know, I uh, in my book, I write about 17 leadership values that are critical for Christian leadership. And one of them is trust. Yeah. Trusting the Lord for the outcome, for your career uh, to guide you 
and accepting what comes your way. Uh-huh. You know, I've been fired twice in my career and and it's harder to trust God when you're unemployed than it That's is right. when you're getting a nice paycheck or or you were voluntarily unemployed when you started World Hope. <laughs> right, and exactly. uh, but that trusting, I'll, I'll never forget when, you know, I was offered the job at World Vision. I was a corporate CEO at the time running Lenox China back in uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And uh, it required a 75% pay cut. And I had five kids all getting ready, you know, to move into college. And and, uh, and I was freaking out. And it was my wife who said, we need to trust God. If God is calling you to this, then we can trust him for the outcome. He will take care of us. And um, my wife has always had greater faith than I've had. And so we we took that leap and we came to World Vision and and the Lord took care. And But right. that trusting is so important for a Christian leader because when we don't trust, we start to say, well, I've got to look out for myself. I've got to take mm-hmm. care of myself. I've got to, I've got to keep this job forever because I need the security. And, and I right. think security can become an idol in the lives of Christians, right? right? Economic security is such a an issue with every human being wants to be right. economically secure. And uh, but I, I think it can be become an idol. I, I, I do, too, Rich. And I and I look at that time, I look back and I think, I mean, I think now, boy, I don't know if I'd have the courage to do this again or not. Yeah. But uh, but it was it was that moment. And I, I might say, add to that in December. Start like I said, finally, we made that decision in December to start in January. But I was reading the Christmas story. Every year I try to read the Christmas story and ask the Lord to teach me something new in the Christmas story. Well, that Christmas story, I wasn't quite ready to get all that he was going to teach me. But it's that part where the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to bear the son of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary asked how, how this will be. And then she says, I am your servant, Lord. Do with me as you wish. Mm-hmm. And then the angel says, after he gives her how he's, the Lord's going to do this, says, with God, all things are possible. And I must say, I know that scripture and, and it sang songs about it. But that day, that was that unique moment when the scriptures just jumped off the page at me and said, with God, all things are possible. And yeah. I, I think that's what gave me that courage to say, OK, we're moving with this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to touch back on World Hope again, because as you know, my passion uh, uh, as the former leader of World Vision is that the Church of Jesus Christ has both a responsibility and an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world, especially with the poor and the downtrodden, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I was constantly and still constantly exhorting the church and Christians to do more. Uh, right. You know, we can do more. We've been blessed in this country. We can do more for refugees. We can do more to feed the hungry. We can be, do more to bring clean water to people right. that don't have it. And uh, and yet, often you get resistance. You know that well. That's not. You know that's the social gospel or that social mm-hmm. justice thing is suspect. And you know, I had a phrase that I used a lot uh, in my time at World Vision is that when you demonstrate when you show people the love of Christ, you draw people to the cross of Christ. That's right. And the great commandment to love our neighbors, especially the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, when you love them unconditionally and you show them the love of Christ, uh, 
you draw them to the cross and the gospel. Absolutely. And uh, and so these things go hand in hand for a Christian church. And so I guess the question is, what would you what would you tell a pastor of a church uh, and what would you encourage him to do regarding missions, the missions of the church? Well, absolutely. I, I, I constantly talk about, uh, you know, the cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus is a different cup of cold water because Jesus is in the power of that water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and that, that is the great opportunity that God has given us in these days to uh, reach uh, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I look at Romans 12, or Romans uh, 15, where Paul says uh, how Christ accomplishes his work. And the very first one is word and deed. People uh-huh. will not hear the word until they experience a deed. Uh, and so that is part of loving. Uh, all, and, you know, Hebrews talks about the work that we do is loving God. And mm-hmm. so it's that, that, that part. And then, of course, Paul talks about in Ephesians, the works that we were created to do. Uh, So it isn't just being alone, sitting home, reading your Bible and quoting a few verses. It is about being out there with, with, with the people. Uh, So I, it's, it's, there's, there's no, there's no, no division. It it is not divided at all. And, and Amos so well says, let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness is a never failing stream. So I talk about justice. If it's just justice over here and just kind of there, and righteousness over here, we're just kind of uh, isolated. But when justice and righteousness come together, that's where transformation takes place. Uh, and so I, I just those are those are my. And I mean, how many verses do we have in the scriptures about uh, about uh, taking care of the you know the the big four, the the widow, the orphan the alien and the poor. I mean, mm-hmm. that's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. We can't serve Jesus without that. We cannot be, a, right. frankly, we can't be a Christian without right. it. Uh, well, as you know, I, I wrote a whole book on this called The Hole in Our Gospel. I and know. What I was saying in that book is that the gospel is a lot more than just praying the sinner's prayer and exactly. going back to the, going back to whatever party you were at before. Exactly. The gospel is a transformational idea that, Transform. God wants to repurpose us, right? He wants right, to take exactly. our lives and repurpose us to become his agents of love and compassion in the world. Right. And uh, we are a sent people. We're sent out uh, right. into the world with the love of Christ in our heart and uh, the words of the gospel on our lips. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what's transformational about yeah. the Christian faith. And when we neglect either one of those Right. things uh we don't have much of an impact in the world no. um, so and, and and also the other piece that i keep wanting to help people understand that we belong to the kingdom of god which is around the world we aren't just one nation uh we aren't nationalists here or whatever we are we are the uh the kingdom of god uh global kingdom of god and those are our brothers and sisters that are in the kingdom of God, but those that are outside of the kingdom of God are still our brothers and sisters because we're made in God's image together. And that's what we've been called. Yeah, no, I, I really resonate with that. And, um, you know, I've been saying, you know, in this very politically charged environment we're in that, you know, the church has to remember that they're not the government and the government is not the church. And so I kind of say, let the government be the government, you know, their job Mm -hmm. is to protect our citizens and our borders and, uh, but the church's job is to love people in the name of Christ. Right. And so let the church be the church and let the government be the government. 
And even if someone is here illegally, the church's job is to love that person. Absolutely. And, and to care for that person um, as Christ would and let the government do the job of figuring out yeah. the laws and how to enforce them mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that. So we've got to kind of separate ourselves from the government because we don't work for the government. We work for the Lord. And uh, That's right. we have to do that which we think the Lord would do for those uh, individuals. Well, we're, we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, Joanne, and mm-hmm. I, I want to shift to this notion of Christian values and leadership values, uh, which is what I wrote about in my, my new book, Lead Like It Matters to God. But I make a very contrarian statement in that book that the values leaders embrace are actually more important than the results they achieve. You know, I talk about values-driven leadership in mm-hmm. a world that is success-driven, And my point, I guess, uh, throughout the book is that God is much more interested in a leader's character than he is about a leader's accomplishments. I say, look, God is not impressed with your resume. He's not impressed with the title on your business card. He's not impressed with the size of your salary or how many people report to you. He's looking at your heart. He's looking at your character. So Mm -hmm. I write about these 17 leadership values that I think are, are critical I wondered if there are, are there two or three leadership values or qualities that have been especially significant for you in your leadership career? Well, what you've written about is critical, uh, Rich, in these days in particular. And so I was very delighted when I read that in, in the book because about our own ethics and what how we, how we really live. I would say that uh, one of uh, several of the values that I take is that of listening really listening, active listening uh, mm-hmm. to uh, people. Uh, not long ago, I was was discussing something about this. Uh, someone was saying something about they didn't like chants, but they like to hear uh, harmony. And I said, but when you do harmony, you have to listen. You know, mm-hmm. when you're with other people and you're going to harmonize together. You have to listen. Not only have you listened, you have to emotionally understand how each of you singing together is going to work. And so I think listening and it's difficult to listen to listen and not think about what you're going to say next. Mm-hmm. But but that's a, a really a huge quality in and 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 you have to practice it. And I've had to practice it a lot mm-hmm. is really deeply listening to what that person is saying and out of the context in which that person is saying. And then uh, there's that whole level of trust. Uh, that is huge. That has to be if you really trust a person and you let them know that you trust them. Uh, I think that's that's a, 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 a character that piece that has to be. Uh, and then really trying to be really operate honestly out of your own being honest with yourself mm-hmm. and not being manipulative. And it's easy to be manipulative. And we laugh about that of kind of being political, we use that term. But what's the difference between there's a way to lead, but without leading in a manipulative way. Right. And there's a way to lead persuasively, mm-hmm. but not being uh, manipulative. Yeah, those are great. And, and it's, it's funny that you mentioned listening first, which is one of my 17 values. And I've been doing this on all the podcasts. I, I, I like to read a quote. I'm going to read a quote to you from my book. And this is my last question. I just want you to react to this quote, uh, agree, disagree, or add something to it. But it's actually a quote about listening. And uh, so here, here, here it is from my book. Everyone knows the familiar phrase, it's lonely at the top. But it doesn't need to be lonely. 
God has surrounded us with other people who, as C.S. Lewis said, are not mere mortals, but people made in the image of God. When you truly listen to others and show that you value their ideas and insights, you get another bonus. They feel affirmed and respected. And team members who feel affirmed and respected care more, work harder, and are more committed. Oh, I, I, I could not agree with you more on that. Because we know, each of us know when we're really being listened to. Uh, and, uh, and that's, and that's an empowering kind of thing too. I mean, we talk about empowering leaders. Well, I think people are empowered when they're listened to because mm-hmm. that, that automatically lifts them up. I'll give you an interesting example. Just a few weeks ago on listening, I was on a zoom call, um, and it was a variety of, uh, of, uh, faith leaders. And, we, and it was our, I was to pray after this next one. Well, I'm, I wish I could really be honest here with you, but, um, when the, I'm to pray after the person who's prayed before me, I'm generally not listening to their prayer much. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. That's true confession here. <laughs> and uh, one of the man, the man who was praying before me was a bishop in one of the historic black churches. And I was thinking about what I was going to say, and I have great respect for him. But suddenly, Rich, I heard him start praying. It was right before the election. I heard him start praying for his people. Dear Lord, be with my people as they go to the polls. Help them to not be harassed. Help them to find the plate, the right place. Don't let anybody send them to one place to vote when it's not a place to vote. And and he went on and on. And I'm telling you, Rich, I listened to him, my eyes filled with tears. And I thought, I have been in the ministry for 50 years. I have never prayed that prayer. Hmm. And that day I thought my white privilege laid bare. Yeah. But I have never had to pray that prayer for my white folks in my my uh, churches. Uh, and and th- I value that ever since then. I thought, help me, Lord, to even listen better. Even if I'm going to pray next, help me to listen to that person's prayer before me. Uh, so I, I can't say enough about how really active listening is about leading. You know, there's a quote from the Dalai Lama that I included in my book, and I'll have to paraphrase it from memory, but he said something like, when you speak, you learn nothing new. When you Mm -hmm. listen, you learn. Yes. And uh, that's not exactly the quote, but I think that's a good place to end our conversation on on that uh, note of yours. And I I just can't thank you enough, Joanne, for sharing uh, your wisdom with us today. Your career has been an inspiration to many, including myself. And I know it's been an inspiration to women who are serving out there right now in the church faithfully and seeking to use their own leadership gifts uh, for God's kingdom. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Well, thank you, Rich. And it was an honor to be with you. And I've enjoyed working with you over these years. And I look forward to more. There you go. Blessings to you. We'll do it. Amen. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.